Well, uh, good morning to you. It's Sunday the 22nd of November and welcome to the online services from Stateford Baptist Church. Uh, today we're continuing in our fifth series looking at life-changing conversations with Jesus. We're going to be looking at John chapter 7 uh, verse 53 through to John chapter 8 verse 11. So if you want to get your Bible out and get that passage uh, dialed up or, already, then please do so. John chapter 7 verse 53. John 8 verse 11. We'll be singing some great songs together uh, led by Rob. Thanks Rob, we really are grateful to you for all that you've done during this Covid period. Uh, Paul, um, another guy we should be saying a massive thank you to uh, for the uh, building work that's going on. He's going to be doing the all age section which I'm looking forward to. And Caroline and Aston, thank you as well. Uh, they're going to be reading the Bible and leading us in prayer. And as usual now I've put together a prayer for someone from each household to read out aloud at the end of the service. So a full and hopefully um, helpful service uh, for us this morning. In pulling together the sermon, I've tried to do it in a different way. Uh, however, I have struggled with the technology a little. Uh, next time I'm gonna go back to plan A. However, I trust you find it okay and not too distracting and that God will speak to you through it. The younger viewers, you might find it interesting to count how many change of clothes I magically manage uh, during the talk. I, I thought uh, that uh, as we're preaching on this uh, passage, this John passage, I would uh, just say a few words about uh, something you in in inevitably see when you open up your Bible at this passage. It says something like this, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have John uh, 7 verses 53 to 8-11. Uh, so what are we to make of that? Uh, in a short while I will be speaking on this and uh, I believe the event happened and I believe it's God wor God's word to us and God's word to us this morning. Yet we have this statement that the earliest and most reliable manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have this passage, which is undoubtedly true, undoubtedly the case. Um, well, I think the first thing to say is that the Bible is the most studied ancient texts, and there are many old manuscripts, in fact, thousands of them, far more, not by a multiple of 10, but probably by a multiple of hundreds, far more than for any other ancient document. And overall, there is very little inconsistency between them. Uh, passages like this one, which aren't there in the ancient uh, scripts, or the most ancient script, scripts, are very rare. Uh, some unknowing people, uh, say that uh, stories of Jesus are like legends that have been passed down by word of mouth and you can't really trust what's written. It probably didn't happen quite like that. Well, that is evidently rubbish. That is evidently not the case. The stories and events were faithfully recorded and documented for us. And we can rely upon the textual authenticity of the Bible like no other ancient text. It has had God's hand upon it. But back to this very rare issue that we have with this passage, it's clear that the earliest texts do not contain this story. However, some of those ancient texts do have it elsewhere in John's Gospel, some after John 7 verse 36, some after John 21 verse uh, 25, and in some this passage occurs in Luke after Luke 21 38. It seems that this story dates a long way back in Christian tradition. Augustine, uh, suggested that it was originally in John's Gospel, but some well-meaning scribe took it out as they feared it gave the impression that Christ condoned adultery. 
Well, I don't uh, think we can know for sure. But what we can be sure of is that this passage has been part of God's Bible and uh, preserved for us for around 1500 years. And it's been usefully used in the teaching of uh, Jesus and uh, the gospel story uh, for over you know, 1500 years. John MacArthur is very helpful here. He asks and answers two questions about this passage. Question number one is, do these verses teach truth that violates other scripture? The answer is no, they do not. Question two, do they in fact corroborate other scripture and substantiate it? The, ans the answer is yes, they do. So I think we're on pretty sure ground, pretty safe ground this morning to study and preach from it. The teaching here, as illustrated by this story, can be found in many other places in his word. So I trust that was helpful. Before we uh, get stuck in, let's briefly pray together. Father, as we meet virtually together, we pray by your spirit, you will pull us together spiritually as we worship in spirit and truth. We ask that our time together this morning will be profitable and encouraging for us. And that for all of us, we might know something more of you and your love and your provision for us. So Father, bless us this morning as we seek to draw near to you. In his name. Amen. Good morning everyone. Today's reading is from the book of John from chapter 7 verse 53 to chapter 8 verse 11. They went each to his own house but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The year is 1739, and the Reverend Thomas Whitford is leading his services in Curry in Cornwall. When uh, suddenly a man comes into the back of the church shouting, Wreck! Wreck ahoy! Uh, the good Reverend Thomas asks his congregation to remain calm and remain seated. That is, until he can go and take his cassock off. It's not fair, he says, if we don't all start even. A few moments later, the decassocked Reverend is joining his congregation with a headlong rush down to Gunwallow Bay, where the Lady Lucy 
has just run aground. Their intention is to take plunder to see what they can rescue from the wreck. Later, the good reverend is found to have four casks of fine wine in his possession. 100 years later, and a whole continent away, uh, in Nantucket Island, just off the coast of New England, there's another group of people who gather to watch the ocean looking for ships in trouble. But their intention is entirely different. They're not interested in plunder. Uh, they're known as a humane society, a lifeboat institution. Their intention is to save lives. It seems that we've got two sets of people in two very similar situations, but they make very different choices. Some choose to save lives and some choose to take plunder. It is my contention this morning that as Christians, we should be in the life-saving business, not the plunder-taking business. You might ask, how does that apply to my life? Well, we all regularly meet people who may have had a little shipwreck. Uh, maybe they've had an argument with their spouse, or maybe they've had a bad day at school or at college. Maybe they're worried about the uh, um, health of a loved one or their own health situation. Uh, maybe they've got themselves into some sort of lumber and uh, it's my contention that as Christians, we should be finding the time to uh, comfort them, to find the words, maybe find the actions to help them out. It's all too easy sometimes to engage in a bit of finger pointing and uh, concluding that they've got themselves into this sort of mess. But no, we should be the people who forgive, accept and show mercy to one another. We should be lifesavers, not plunder takers. So in coming to this passage this morning, where Jesus shows the crowd exactly that, that they should be lifesavers, not plunder takers, I've got three sections. Uh, sorry, no alliteration. Uh, but firstly, we're going to consider the woman. And secondly, we're going to consider the crowd and especially all the people and especially how Jesus turned them. And thirdly, we're going to look at Jesus himself and how he dealt with this highly charged and emotional situation. Firstly, the woman. We know very little about her. All we know is what's written there in the text, uh, that she's been caught in the act of adultery with an unknown man. And the text and the understanding of it is very clear. She was caught literally in the act and dragged from that situation. This would be a truly horrible moment for this lady. It would, uh, it would not have been enough, it seems quite clear, under Jewish law to rely upon witness statements uh, for the death penalty. Uh, for the death penalty to apply under the law of Moses, the couple would need literally to have been caught in the act. So a horrible situation for her. And we could weave, could we not, fictitious stories around this uh, character. Uh, she could have been abused by her husband. She could have been forced into an arranged marriage. She could be in some sort of loveless uh, arrangement and the man she truly loved was denied her. We could easily construct stories that make us sympathetic towards her. Uh, many films and television dramas follow such plots, don't they? Uh, but equally, we could, we could construct a scenario uh, where she has a loving and faithful husband and she's got children at home. Uh, but she gets bored and goes chasing a life of fun. 
and she is the one being selfish and disregarding the consequences of her actions and the horrible impacts it may have on others around her. We could make this her husband's fault. We could make this her fault. We could make this a fault of circumstance. And the truth is it was probably a bit of all that. But we don't know, we don't know for sure. But what we do know for sure is there but the grace of God. We could be there, couldn't we? We're all guilty of sin and we could all be caught in some act or other and brought to face our Lord. And she'd made her choice. She had fallen into sin. You could also imagine uh, that uh, with that choice, that choice of having an affair, uh, all other sins get wrapped up in that too. Uh, the deception, the lying, it will become second nature. I wonder how she reconciled herself to this life she'd fallen into. Perhaps she woke some nights in a cold sweat and feeling guilty, but then she would come up with some justification, some reason why she should go on with the affair and the deception. We can all do that, can't we? We can all relate to that. It might not be adultery, it may be some other sins, uh, but we could all come up with some reason, some mitigation, some self-justification, someone else or circumstance to blame. Just as a complete aside really, but it's kind of linked. I've been playing a lot of golf since my semi-retirement and I play, would you believe it, a lot of bad shots. And there's always some excuse, there's leaves on the floor or uh, there's some somebody walking many, many yards away and they put me off my stroke. We're all like that, don't we? We want excuses uh, to excuse our faults. Uh, but when I'm playing golf, the truth of the matter is I'm not really very good. Uh, but we all like to see and we like to point fingers or throw stones at others who are just falling into the same problems uh, we have. We like to excuse it in ourselves, but we're very quick to point the finger when it uh, is there in somebody else. So for this woman, we can only guess at the backstory. But then comes that morning, the men burst in. She screams, she's dragged from her bed, uh, perhaps wrapped in a, in a sheet, and she is then brought to Jesus. Notice from the text, she is brought to Jesus at dawn. The implication is that she's been dragged from the bed that she's been sharing with her lover and carried and dragged to Jesus. Just as an aside to keep up this dichotomy in our thinking, there's another story, isn't there? There's another story about someone being carried to Jesus and this person was carried by his friends. Um, he couldn't move, he was paralysed and he was carried by his friends and dropped through the roof. Those friends were truly in the life-saving business. They brought someone to Jesus. They were in the life-saving business. But this woman was dragged by those self-righteous people carrying their, their stones and they were in the life-taking business. In a sense, we could all be that woman. I think I've made this point. Uh, we could all be that woman. We could all be caught out in our sin and presented before the judge of the world. I wonder how we would want Jesus to react. So have you fixed her in your mind? This woman facing the terror of an angry, unforgiving crowd, knowing she's guilty, shivering and shaking as she sits before the Lord. Secondly, the people. The people led by the accusers were all shouting and screaming, all holding stones and ready to throw them. That could be us too, I guess. I guess we could all think of times when someone has betrayed us or let us down 
or probably worse than that, betrayed and let down someone we love dearly. There are times, are there not, that we are so cross we could throw those stones. We don't know the motivation of all the people here. We know something of the motivation of the leaders. They clearly want to trap Jesus. But in the crowd, consider this, in the crowd there could be the children of a marriage broken by her actions. In the crowd there could be the mother of the betrayed husband, hurting and angry, and rightly so. Certainly in the crowd there were the spiritually self-righteous. They thought it was their duty to throw the stone. They thought they were about God's business. And the leaders were clearly trying to catch Jesus out. Uh, they thought they had him. If he'd said, throw the stone, the Roman authorities would have him because uh, the law was only Rome could commit someone to death. But if he said, uh, drop the stones, they could accuse him of not upholding the law of Moses. Uh, they seemed to think they'd cleverly trapped Jesus. Okay, I think we're painted the picture reasonably well there. So let's just take a break. We have this woman caught in sin, looking for mercy. We have the crowd feeling righteous and judgmental, ready to show no mercy. Each one of us could be in either position this morning. Try and put yourself in either of those positions. It's not difficult to do, really. Not difficult to do. Imagine you've been caught in some sin and all the people are surrounding you, angry and hurting. You want forgiveness and you really wish you could wind that clock back and not make the same mistake a second time. Conversely, imagine being so cross with someone, so indignant, that you've picked up that stone and you're ready to throw. We're going to come back in a moment to this story. But I just want to take a little break, just pause and just uh, take you on a little tangent. Many Christians, many Christian thinkers, that is, have divided sin into two types. The first type of sin is what they call physical sin. And these are things we recognise, adultery, murder, stealing, the obvious things, things that scandalise us, things we all tut, 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 tut about. Secondly, there is spiritual sin. And these sins have less to do with our biology and more to do with our souls. They have names like pride and arrogance, self-righteousness, judgmentalism. They don't provoke so much gossip or scandal. When we hear that a pastor has left a church for moral reasons, we don't think it was because he was too proud or arrogant, do we? Yet sins of the spirit are very dangerous and they can send us to hell just as easily um, <coughs> as physical sins. It's just sometimes they're not even recognised as sins. There are a number of stories in the gospel, I think, well, I know, uh, where a triad is set up. There's a physical sinner, there's a spiritual sinner, and there's our Lord. And every story seems to go the same way. The physical sinner is dealt with tenderly by Jesus, and the spiritual sinner is taught a lesson. Just think, for example, the story of the Pharisee and the woman who anointed Jesus' feet, or the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee, even the prodigal son and his brother. And here, another example, the story of the woman and the crowd. Jesus knew the danger and hypocrisy of spiritual sin. He was very uh, cutting and scathing speaking to the uh, Pharisees, wasn't he? A quote from C.S. Lewis. He's over-exaggerating a bit, but I think he makes a good point. He says this, this is C.S. Lewis. Physical sins are bad, 
but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronising. The pleasure of power, of hatred. For there are two things inside me, says uh, um, C.S. Lewis, competing with the human self. And the human self is the person he wants to be, the, 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 the person that wants to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, there's two things inside me competing with the human self, which I must try to become. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. The animal self, the physical sinner, and the diabolical self, the spiritual sinner. And the diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why, says C.S. Lewis, a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may far, be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. Well, C.S. Lewis didn't hold back, did he? He makes the point strongly. Now, back to the story. The truth <coughs> is the stone throwers were just as guilty as the lady. They were just as guilty before a holy God as the lady who'd been caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus, this is the brilliance of this moment, I think. Jesus goes on quite brilliantly to take people divided between the righteous stone throwers and this woman caught in adultery. And he unified them as one. He unified them as one group of people and they became sinners who needed forgiveness. And all those sinners were at that, mo at that moment in the presence of the man who was and is God. They were sinners in the presence of the Holy God, sinners before the judge of the world. Don't you think that's brilliant? Consider all the passion and all the drama of the moment, all the shouting and the chaos, yet Jesus is control. He's got it all worked out. He takes this divided, hostile crowd and unifies them into one group, one group of people who all recognise their sin and all recognise their need for mercy. So thirdly, the Lord. It seems uh, from the context here, if you read back to chapter 7 and verse 53, that Jesus may have been up all night. He may have been in communion, in prayer with his father. Um, and it says after from, coming down from the Mount of Olives, he went to teach in the temple and it seems that uh, um, he's, uh, it's common for people of that time to, or teachers of that time to sit down and teach. It seems a normal way that things were done. The teacher would sit down and teach and people would be milling about going on their own uh, way, but they would come and listen for a while uh, and then perhaps move on. It's all calm and Jesus is teaching and people are listening. Then into the teaching session, uh, break these stone throwers with the woman. They drag her before Jesus. Here's a woman caught in adultery. The law says she should be stoned to death. What do you say? Do you remember a detective show called Columbo? Well, I guess some of you do, some of you are old enough. Um, and Columbo often seemed to be uh, not listening or not seeing things. And he seems to be talking to the people we knew watching the television program uh, were the guilty one. And he seems to be blundering about. His interview would seem pointless. And then he would turn to go and uh, then he would just turn around at the end and say one last thing. And that one last thing, he would put his finger on the, uh, the point. He would uh, show that he had it all worked out. He knew what was going on and he was in control. And Jesus is a little like that here, isn't he? He doesn't answer. He's the calm one. Amongst the crowd, everyone's shouting and screaming. He's the calm one. Uh, what are you going to do? They're all shouting. Should we throw the stones? What do you say? Should she be stoned to death? He remains calm. He doesn't answer. He simply writes in the sand. 
this is the only account we have, by the way, of Jesus writing. They kept on questioning as he was writing. There's lots of conjecture about what he may have been writing, all sorts of ideas. Uh, some people suggest he may have been writing down all 10 of the commandments, uh, the full the full list of commandments, the full law of God, so that everyone could have a look and check up um, how they were doing, what their standing was before the law. Uh, perhaps he was writing down the names of particular sins. Maybe he knew what uh, the people around him were guilty of and he was writing down those sins. Uh, one, one idea is that it was customary for a judge at the time. Jesus has been put by the people, by the way, into this uh, position of the judge. They were asking him for his verdict. Um, and uh, it was customary for a judge to write his judgment down. And he perhaps wrote in the sand what he then spoke. Uh, he may have written something like, throw the stones, but make sure you are without sin. Only then can you throw the stones. Then one by one, the people dropped their stones, starting with the oldest. Perhaps the oldest were more guilty than most. Until all the stone throwers have gone and Jesus is left alone with the woman. <coughs> it's a beautiful moment, isn't it? Have they all gone? Asked Jesus. All those that would condemn you. Jesus is the only one there without sin. He is the only one who could rightfully throw a stone. But he does not. So, application and conclusion. What has this got to do with us? Why have I spent so long uh, painting this picture? As I said at the beginning, we've all got choices to make. We can all be lifesavers or plunder takers. We can drop those stones or throw them. So three points of application then to finish. Point one, it seems to me the community of Jesus, uh, there should be no room for stone throwers, the muckrakers, the hair splitters. But sadly, the church has traditionally had plenty of them. Those that judge the music is too loud, sermons too long or too short. Fancy wearing that dress to church. Do we indulge in judging one another, gossiping about one another, looking for faults? Do we make church a welcoming place for people who need to know forgiveness? Or is it a place where those stones fly? Well, I believe, uh, I know that SBC is a loving, welcoming and accepting place. It's a great fellowship to belong to but we must not be complacent. We need to constantly check our motivations uh, and we need to pray lots and lots bef before we try and support others in their difficulties. We are to support and accept and help one another. We need to love each other as we are and ask for God's help in supporting one another as we walk the Christian walk together. Paraclesis, coming alongside one another, helping one another, encouraging one another, ministering to one another. Point two, are you holding on to any stones? Is there someone in your family at work, at school or in the church who has hurt you and you're really very angry with? Maybe with some justification, maybe they have done you wrong and badly wrong. Maybe there's good reason for you to be cross with them. There's somebody you just want to chuck a stone at. You know, bitterness is a dreadful thing. It eats away at us. Bitterman. If you don't know my story about the bitterman, then next time uh, we meet, uh, please ask me and I'll tell you. Christ is very clear in his teaching. Matthew 5, love your enemies. 
Matthew 18, how many times do we forgive? We go on forgiving again and again, as often as required. We are a forgiven people. We must be forgiving people. And thirdly, we are all sinners and deserves and we deserve God's justice. We could all be that woman caught in sin before our Lord. I think I've made that point numerous times. This uh, preacher is certainly repeating himself. We could all be that woman uh, sitting before the Lord, waiting for his verdict. Everyone else has left and Jesus says, have they all gone? Those that condemn you. And then those beautiful words, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Don't miss the two points here. No condemnation. Yes. Hallelujah. But go and sin no more. As I said at the close of the sermon on John chapter three, he loves us. Jesus loves us as we are. He accepts us as we are. He died on the cross because we are as we are. He loves us as we are, but he loves us far too much to leave us as we are, as we are. He says here, neither do I condemn you, so go and sin no more. Christ can forgive, can he not, because of the cross. There our punishment was laid on him. Now he can have mercy on us and forgive. If anyone listening to this or watching this is not a Christian, then turn to Christ and know him and know his forgiveness. Friends, let's uh, rejoice in him as our saviour and let's continue to help one another as we walk on in our Christian faith. And let us continually praise him for our salvation. Thank you for saving me. What can I say? Mercy and grace are mine. Forgiven is my sin. Jesus, my only hope, the saviour of the world. Thank you for saving me. May God bless you. Amen.